Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Comic Book Page podcast. My name is John Mayo. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. Before we get going on this episode, quick little behind-the-scenes note. For the episodes I do with my sister, I use a Zoom H5. This is a handheld recorder. The reason I mention this is I use this device when we go to conventions, like the one we did recently in Dallas. So I've got to, you know, unplug everything, take it up there, etc., and then plug it back in when we get home. And when I do that, there are knobs in there for how loud the volume is, and sometimes those move and stuff. When I got it back home and set it back up where we watch uh, television and do the box lights, I didn't double check that the the volume knob hadn't gotten uh, misset, and it did on my side, substantially so. And we recorded a number of clips, uh, including this episode, and I've since tried to fix the audio as best I can. I think you can pretty much make out what I'm saying, but it is not audio quality I'm happy with. But it is either that or try to re-record the episode, and just normally that doesn't work out as well. So I just wanted to kind of, you know, apologize for the poor audio quality in this episode. I think if you go back over the other 1,100 and some odd episodes I've done, you'll note that normally it's much better quality than this. So with that, let's get going. In this roundtable discussion, I am joined by my sister Kay. We are going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about not just the season, but the entire series of Person of Interest. Mm-hmm. We have just watched the uh, final episode of the fifth season, which concludes the entire series. And it's one that is, uh, I found it to be a very interesting show. Because my narrative theories kind of, particularly around television, around a lot of serialized shows, I think there's the show... The creators set out wanting to do. Mm-hmm. I think there's the show they initially do. Mm-hmm. There's the show that we watch. And fall in love with. And fall in love with, or not, whatever, yeah. but it's the True. show we think we're watching. And then they start writing the show they think they should have been writing, they think we've been watching, or something. The show they think we've been enjoying, and they think that we've been responding to. Yeah, they see something, and maybe it was their plan all along, whatever, but their vision and our vision of what the show is changes and diverges. Well, and Person of Interest is really a great example of that combination of theories. Oh, absolutely. Because in season one, our parents watched the show. Well, the original pitch is it was a twist on the standard kind of police pursuit. You had a a, a rich guy hire essentially a mercenary. Mm -hmm. And the rich guy was getting numbers. uh, uh, Social security. Yeah, social security numbers. And the, from from a machine, and the question was, are they the victim or are they the perpetrator? Something is going to go down around this guy. We don't know what. All, all, got the number. all we know is this person is a person of interest in some incident that will happen probably in the next 24 hours. So he takes the police procedural, the standard mystery show, adds another level of mystery. Well, you're not sure if they're the victim or perpetrator or, mm-hmm. or what. They're caught in the middle. Do they need to be protected and defended? Or do they need to be talked out of making a really colossally bad decision? Or stopped, just generally, if you can't talk them out of it. Yes. But that, that second level mystery, that kind of what is the mystery, yes. I thought was interesting. It was a great twist on... Procedural. At that point, it was much more episodic versus serial. Very episodic, and the machine and that stuff, that was just the way they got the numbers. Mm. There was a little bit of backstory to have it come to be and, you know, explain the premise a little bit. But at that point, it was premise yes. to facilitate, I don't want to say standard police procedure, but something along those lines. Well, and it was a very clearly pitched as a reaction to 9-11. Someone had seen the towers go down, Mm -hmm. and he he was a computer programmer. And he'd said, you know, we have all these cameras around the city. We have all these microphones in our lives. We have all this information if we could only have used it to prevent this. Yeah. And he, he had two theories. One was, what if all of this 
information about terrorism and relevant to the government and criminal activity, mm-hmm. what if all that information went to the government and they could make use of it? But then what about all these things that it's harder and really doesn't apply to the government? It's irrelevant to that category. It's something on the, the macro level, the national level, isn't a big deal, but it's still somebody getting killed, somebody getting robbed, you know, whatever the crime may be. Yeah. What if those irrelevant numbers went to somebody who does care about these individuals, wants to help them, wants to protect them, wants to save them? And I really loved that this was a show at that point about these people that on that macro, national, and international politics level, they still mattered. Yeah. There was an aspect of if somebody was kind of looking out for the other one. Yeah. And I really liked that aspect. I thought they had uh, a good cast on the show. I I liked the point John Reese's character was at in his life in terms of he he'd lost his sense of purpose, he'd lost his sense of hope. He was a homeless vet riding the subway without direction. Mm-hmm. And in walks this guy who understands you have the skills I need and you need someone to be your compass in every sense, not you just... A purpose. I have a purpose that needs someone like you. Yeah. Match. yeah, well, and it's not just you need a moral compass, but you need someone to to give you not just the purpose, but the direction to go in with your life. And mm-hmm. I can give you one that holds meaning. Well, it was also very interesting at that point in the show along was Finn Cheryl's was very mysterious, we knew very little about him. Mm. John Reese, the, the missionary of ours, knew virtually nothing about him. Mm. So he would follow him at times. There was a little cat and mouse type aspect there. They're friends, but they don't always really know or trust each other. Yeah. And so many aspects of the show center around information, uh, either sharing or not, uh, of that information. Trust, who can you trust, who shouldn't you trust. Yes. And it was very kind of cerebral show in respect, and had a lot of very cool ideas to play with. Yeah. And at first, the machine was just this magic black box, almost a MacGuffin thing, that had this, this algorithm that kicked stuff out. The more we learn about it, the more it becomes apparent it is an artificial intelligence. Yes. And then it becomes an artificial super intelligence. Hmm. And then at some point along the way, and I'd have to go back through the history to really understand where this shift happened. It went from being around the police procedural-ish sort of aspect to the conspiracy theory aspect. There's a competing machine. Can they survive? I think when the competing machine came in is when we really got into the conspiracy theory aspect. Well, We got into it a little when we started seeing what was happening with the numbers that went to the government. We got... The, the insight into the government side of it, other programs, were there other ones, but once it went from the whole northern lines and somebody trying to get control of this machine, to there is a competing one and it is online, and now it's every, you know, Samaritan against our guys. Kind yeah. Of the show took a very different turn. We also got a bit of the conspiracy theory aspect when we... We found out why Harold was so secretive in terms of we found out that everybody associated with the creation of the machine mm. and the machine being sold to the government was dying or dead. There was an aspect of paranoia at times in the show that was very well founded. Yes. Because when you have this all-seeing machine or people who are afraid of an all-seeing machine, they don't have two great lengths. Yeah. But at that point, we had, I mean, initially HR... Cops was a big thing. And, you know, I don't want to stop you, but that brings in Lionel Fusco. And Mm -hmm. of all the characters in the show, I think he's the one who had the best arc and the best development. He certainly had the most character growth and change over the time. Because he started out as a corrupt cop, got forced into doing good things. Became a good person. Yeah. And at the end, was offended when he would think he would do bad things. Yeah. So his arc was the most pronounced, I think, but in a, a subtle evolution that really worked. 
Well, and there was a point at which uh, he had the earbud come in, and I don't recall if it was, I think it was Shaw on the other end, and she was telling him she knew where his son was being held hostage, she knew where he was being held hostage, and she could get to one of them, Mm -hmm. and the other would die, and... He's being interrogated where he's being hostage. He can't blatantly answer her. But he is. A- she is asking him, do you understand? I can save one of you, and I need you to confirm you are okay with my saving your son and leaving you to fend for yourself mm-hmm. and probably die. And Fusco says yes. And it was one of those turning points where... This guy who, in the beginning, was the selfish, corrupt cop. Even as a selfish, corrupt cop, he still looked out for his kid. Yes. But there became a very selfless yes. aspect to the noble son. Yeah. And his son, well, at times it's easy to forget about it, other times was a very relevant aspect of Foster's character. Even though I would be helpful to see anything really technically cast in the son at times. The scene playing, yeah. you know, with a bunch of kids playing hockey or whatever. I think the only time he was truly prominently cast and we were aware of him was that one episode yeah. where he was held hostage. And it was really great because part of his motivation, when he realized he was doing good things, he was actually enjoying doing good things. Mm-hmm. You know, he realized he did want to be a good role model for his son. He did want to do better for his son. He did want to protect his yeah. son. And... The, the, the growth on the Foster character over the years was really done incrementally. It was done believably. It was never kind of a sharp turn. And the actor just did a, a terrific job. Yeah. He was as believable as the corrupt cop who would bury you in a ditch nowhere to be found as the one who would risk anything to save you. Yeah. And again, the, the slow turning point. And you could push him, but only so far. You can trust, but only so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of nuances to that song. Yeah. And the whole bit with HR, kind of the corrupt organization, cops sort of initially, that was really the first season. We got to where it was just ancient history by the time the series ends. Yeah. And in between, you had Elias and kind of the mob wars going on at different times. Enrico Cohn Tony did a great job with that. Hell, he was practically part of the team during part of the fifth season. Yeah. In many ways. In his character, not so much his growth, but the evolution of the status quo. Yes. Because his character is not radically different from the scene to where we're leaving. Um, but then we also had the first Samaritan. What was the other group? The Vigilance or whatever? Uh, oh, yes. Yes. The guys who were so against being monitored. And everything. At one point, they realized Samaritan was the one texting them information, and yeah, was using. Yeah, they've been co-opted. Yeah, was using them against the machine. So there was a lot of different threats over the years. Uh, the, the government organization, the government, etc. But it never totally felt like this is necessarily the big bad for the season. Mm. And even if that really, you know was the case. It felt like the show, from uh, the lead character's point of view, they were on a straight line, but they were getting hit from different angles by different groups. The, it, it didn't feel kind of like how in Buffy the Vampire Slayer or other shows where there's a clear arc for the, the season, uh, you know, like uh, Once Upon a Time or Continuum or some of these other shows. It just felt like we were zigging and zagging things. So like yeah. The thing that got our parents to tune out was when they stopped getting a number each episode. Mm-hmm. And when it really became the machine versus Samaritan. Well, there came a point where the episodic procedural aspect fell away. It was all around the opposing side, you know, with which machines, side you are, and how do you survive. And almost the very concept of getting numbers was at one point almost dropped entirely. At another point, it was brought back, but almost as an annoyance. Yeah. You know? And that's where I go back to the show they started doing and the show we ended with. Yeah. Were so different. Yeah. As to be almost unrecognizable. I mean, if, if 
if you go through and describe, okay, you get the numbers to say, you know, are they, you got to spy on them for a bit to figure out if they're the good guy, the bad guy, or what's going on, and save whoever needs to save etc. And then you go to the, the, the end, okay, you've got a war between two super intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence. They're duking it out. If I was the rules, the world's, you know, falling apart at the scenes. We have a woman with a cochlear implant who can talk to one of the machines. We have... Well, again, she's dead. She's now the ghost of... Yes. Kind of. The machine has almost taken her persona. We have a 10 or 12-year-old boy who seems to be the voice of the other machine. Well, again, I'm still talking to the stream of the pilot in well, the yeah. episode. I mean, some of those things have even been dropped. It's the kind True. of thing, if you miss a couple of key episodes here and there... Yeah. Like our parents are want to do. Yes. They travel, you know, they, they just, you know, something else to do, you know, whatever. You miss an episode or two and you're like, what's going on here? Yeah. Who is this new threat of a character of, uh, who's the rival, uh, general? Oh, I want to say his name was Lincoln? Shoot, I forgot. Um, I know. You know who I'm talking about. The one I who's do. Elias Infant. You miss an episode and you're like, who is this guy? You miss another episode, you're like, what happened to that guy? You miss another one, you don't even get a good introduction to Samaritan, or, you know, suddenly this other thing. Dominic. Dominic, that's what it was. There were parts where the arc aspect of particular episodes, very, very famous. And not necessarily in a bad, but when something turns out as episodic as this is, yeah. it ends such a serial narrative. Now, there are some things uh, in the last couple of episodes where they brought back a lot of previous characters and really used them well. Yeah. That I loved, because it's like, okay, those earlier stories do matter. Yeah. But, like, at one point, uh, Root had a couple of guys working for her, tech guys. Yeah. And they're there for a little bit, they do their thing. Oof, gone. You must never get seen again. Yeah. You know, and things that are, are meant to be seemingly big deals or new status quo, just they don't last longer than they've dealt with in it. I don't want to sound like I'm coming down on the show, because while well, it had these zigs and zags, and I found them a little new, it was a really good show. It brought up a lot of very interesting points about the level of surveillance, the lack of privacy, and if somebody would really, you know, have a system that could just magically tap into, and I literally mean magically, because technically yes. it's not possible, in terms of the, this machine, both uh, the machine and Samaritan, the prison machine, could tap into every electronic device around you. Mm. You know, the, the speakers on your TV suddenly could be listening to your cell phone, your tablet, your computer. It's, it's spying on everything, everywhere, recording all that information. It has it all the history of it. Yes. And it's like just the... The processing power, the storage quantities. Well, and it was allegedly um, sorting through all the information on every piece of social media. It essentially became an expert on everything. Yeah, past, present, and seemingly future. Well, it could predict you if it knew you well enough. Yeah. And, you know, I'm willing to buy in if it, if it had that much information on somebody and could instantly collate it. And if you think about it, it's not only doing it real time, it's doing it faster than real time. Mm. Because of all the different data sources it's collecting on. And the fact that it's having to do it for everybody almost individually across all those. Yeah. The, the parallel processing and, and just data organization is unfathomable. Yeah. I'll say that now, and you know, who knows, 50 years, so, oh yeah, of course it was obvious it was going to happen. No, it's just science fiction. Science fantasy. Yeah, well, and one of the interesting concepts that they explored, in the, particularly in Season 5, but a bit in Season 4, was whether or not you could train morality effectively into an artificial intelligence or superintelligence. I think they dealt with that even earlier. Possibly as far back as first season. Whenever we started to get the scenes of Harold building the machine and having conversations with the machine, mm. you know, why did you do this? How did you know this? You know, how did you know that? Mm-hmm. And the, the magic of him having written a piece of software that is cognizant. Yeah. And... As a as a, a software engineer myself, I find that concept fascinating because, on the one hand, I believe it is entirely possible to build a sophisticated enough program or something that simulates thought as to be indistinguishable from thought. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that means the machine is thinking or just pretending to think convincingly, at that point, who cares? 
when one of the episodes that I found intriguing was the one where the machine has gone offline, has been brought back online, and determines that Root and Harold are threats. Yes, they're like, well, we need to be trained. Let's have it just identify us. And it goes through their history of all of the things that they have sometimes done with the Behesta machine, and almost always done for the ultimate good reason. But on the surface, the act itself. I mean, I took an ethics course in college, and one of the questions, one of the professors, it was a one professor Monday, another professor Wednesday, taking the opposite side of the machine and discussion thing on a Friday. But one of the points one of the professors made was, "Guy saves somebody from dying. Good, bad, indifferent. Oh, I'm so good to save him. Yeah, he did that so he could shoot him. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that puts a bit of light on it. Kind of. mm-hmm. It's all complex. And to well, me, that's, that's where the, the software goes from, could you even conceivably write something that appears to think to just magical, because it's able to build this context to rationalize about things, to learn ultimately the meaning of life or anything. Yeah. And that, I'm not saying could never be done, but it's, it, it, to me, it's something that is so far from uh, current reality. Well, in the episode where uh, Shaw... I think it was Shaw, wanted to get in touch with the team. Um, pretty sure it was Shaw. But she's in a convenience store and decides to pick up the phone and place a phone call and ask the clerk, what's your name? And says, I'm about to kill so-and-so. Oh, and yeah. then uh, tapes him up and stuff. And he's terrified. And she's like, no, no, I was just putting out a call to a friend. I think she's as much trying to get um, the critical, our good guy's attention as Samaritan's attention. She knew this was something that would go up like a flare to both machines. Exactly. And it's an interesting concept that if you know the keywords that will grab the attention, all you have to do is say the keywords. But as she put it, you you know the cameras are watching, so you can't you can't fake it. You can't put false keywords. Well, but the thing is it's not just keywords, it's watching it had to believe she was a threat. Yeah. And it's that depth. Of, of sophistication, of uh, getting to know the people well enough to be able to accurately... We saw a couple of episodes where they do simulations. And the one where Shaw went through 7,000 simulations annoyed me because Samaritan did not understand Shaw. What annoyed me is not that it was going through simulations, but it was putting Shaw through simulations. Mm. The machine in the episodes we've seen, they'd get into an unwinnable situation... And we would see it play out a couple of dozen times. Let's try this, let's try this, let's try mm-hmm. this. And it's like the machine is going to have to coach adventures, etc. Go down this, shoot this, do this, whatever. You know, it's like playing a video game at that point. Yeah. Well, but doing it in such rapid succession that in a fraction of a second, it's gone through thousands of these permutations. Yeah. With Sean with the glasses, they were also permanent. They were also purposely messing with her head. Oh, absolutely. It was well done. Yeah. But they should have, since they had access to her medical files, etc., 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 they should have understood that threatening to hurt innocent people wasn't going to affect Shaw. I was more hung up by the fact they put virtual reality-type glasses on her, and suddenly she is in a complete 360, full hearing, sensory, you know, touch... Yeah. Situation she can't tell the difference from I Okay, w- she's drugged. Fine, yeah, exactly. I'll go with that. But putting her through simulation to me was a, a even higher caliber thing than just a machine being able to accurately or not even uh, uh, simulate reality, how things would play out with just all of the different variables coming into play. Yeah. And it's a fun concept. Mm hmm. They used it well, they did good things with it, and they weren't trying to sell this as as real science. Yeah. And to me, this is one of the truer science fiction premises on television in the, the, the realm of science fiction as warnings about the direction we're taking technology. Are Sad we going true. too far with, with invasion of privacy, too far with kind of analytics? Well, and they did more than one episode that made the very good point of if you feel like your privacy is being invaded, stop and think about how much of your private information you're posting on Facebook, MySpace, those kinds of pages. Well, there was one comment that uh, Harold Finch, that character, made 
of just how much easier it was to get all the social networking information when he started the Facebook equivalent in that world. Yeah. And people just gave it to him. Yeah. Versus him trying to deduce it from from anything. Yeah. It's again a, a fun concept and if they were trying to, to spout out to something about the left right and say, we've got a little something more in terms of oh we've got to do this with a virus or something versus, you know, how is the machine architected how could it really run on, on a couple hundred or whatever video games or generation of videos? Yeah. Um, compared to the hardware we've seen a few seasons earlier. Yeah. That was something was, yeah. Well, if I was going to recommend the show to people, from my perspective, I miss Carter. Mm-hmm. I love all the episodes that have Detective Carter in them. I think the earlier episodes where it's more episodic and they're getting the numbers for me, were the stronger episodes. I think so, and I also think of the Detective Carter a character. She brought a warmth and humanity to it, mm-hmm. and integrity from the, the police standpoint, Yeah, and helped kind of get John uh, onto a good path. Yeah. Who she, in turn got, got Foster on a good path. Yes. She uh, really taught him to uh, stop making kill shots and start aiming for kneecaps. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it's funny, but for him, that was a very good progression. Yeah. It, it was something he needed. And in the finale, he makes some some very good comments about not thinking that saving individuals would help him save the world, but realizing that sometimes it is if you save the right individual. Yeah. You are saving the world. Yeah, it's... It's funny because the show had dual messages of everyone's important. Yeah. But also some are more important than others. Yeah. You know, there's some people, if they die, would not have had a profound impact on that world. Others, Harold and a couple of key ones, unbelievable impact on the world. Yeah. For good or ill. Yeah. Um, it's a show I would recommend to people that like both. The police procedural kind of PI, you know, sort of a show that started uh, appearing to be, and the conspiracy sci-fi, you know, Big Brother is watching, you know, uh, AI kind of thing that was at the end. When um, and, and can deal with that that shift. Yes, when uh, Snowden and all of that hit the news. A uh, person of interest provided some of the key cards for San Diego Comic Con, mm-hmm. and in uh, colored letters down part of the key card, it said told ya. And then the those letters were parts of words. And yeah. I forget what all the words were. But anyways, they, they kind of gave the hint of you thought we were only making up. That your, your life isn't as private as you deluded yourself into thinking. Anyone who thinks they've got that kind of level of privacy that frankly you would have taken for granted Maybe as recently as 20 years ago. Yeah. It doesn't exist right now. Yeah. How many of us are, uh, if somebody wanted to and had the access to the data, could track our interests by the podcast we listen to, the television shows we stream, the websites we visit, yeah. the books we buy or, or you know, whatever, um, internet traffic, not to mention the fact that every retail, you know, credit card swipe or debit card swipe or whatever is being tracked through point of sale systems and all of this stuff that I mean the, the, the main anonymity we've got now is just there's so much data and nobody really cares about it for the most part. Yes. Once people start caring, that's when you get into the slippery slope. Yeah. And on the one hand, are we sacrificing privacy? Absolutely. On the other hand, can some of this be used to make us safer? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of okay with that. But as long as I kinda stay out of trouble and, and stuff Kind of want people staying out of out of my data. Yeah, you know. Um, well, and there's something to be said for I see these things go up on Facebook of you know uh, there will be a graphic and it'll say you know take the month you were born and it gives this word take the number for your birth date and it makes this word. Take the year you were born and it gives you this word, and this is your elf name, or this is your whatever. But what a clever way to go get somebody's uh, birthday. Yeah, and I think a lot of people 
see this as something really funny to do or something really fun to do, but and people do those, they do some of these surveys about, hey, do you remember what your childhood pet was or your first pet was? Let's all compare names of what we named our first pet. And you end up giving out a lot of information that you're using as security information over on bank accounts and things like that. There's uh, an aspect of social engineering. Yeah. Which, at times, you dealt with a little here, usually on the perpetrator or a person's interest side versus the main group. Uh, most of how they were gathering information was kind of hijacking your phone yeah. or something like that and listening in. But in this day and age, the amount of information you could, could very easily gather on somebody through Facebook, Twitter, uh, forum posts, blog posts, or just, again, social stuff. Yeah. Staggering. Yeah. And I don't think we're at a point, and I hope we never get to a point, where opening up and sharing aspects of yourself are a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, with the podcast, somebody could go through the thousand and eleven, twelve hundred episodes I've done and get a pretty good taste, I hope, for my taste in comics or what I like about movies, storytelling, that kind of stuff, which is why I'm doing this. Yeah. Um, can they learn other kinds of, of things about them? Probably. But... In, in this world of person of interest, that might have been enough for that machine to see profile, but, but simulate me. Yeah. And almost, not almost, but we saw it on the recent episode when we had the, uh, the conspiracy uh, radio show host DJ Bob. Yes. And Samaritan basically hijacked his voice. Hijacked the broadcast, replaced his voice, making it seem like he was about to commit suicide. Yeah. So doing that kind of on the fly, both vocal impersonation, but also the, the speech patterns, tone, the style, mm. you know, kind of thing. It's just, it, to me, it's, it's wildly interesting, completely flabbergasting and utterly unrealistic as certain both. Yeah, well, and... Because if it's not, I'm wasting a lot of time doing this episode. I just want the software to be reformed. Well, and there's a degree of malicious intent in this show that I truly hope doesn't exist in the real world. Well, but that's something where both we got an aspect certainly in this season of the personality of the machine. Yes, both machines. Um, uh, but certainly an aspect of that. And Samaritan, I think we got more insight into earlier because it would actually communicate versus just kind of king Well, and we were always aware that Samaritan did not value individual lives. This season, Samaritan was instigating DNA testing of individuals. And in that manner, profiling individuals. Well, and that's the kind of thing I think it's good for science fiction, books, television shows, movies, to get those concepts out there and get thinking about this. Now, from my perspective, because I do genealogy, my reaction to that DNA plotline was, I wonder who's been seeing the ads for Ancestry DNA and all of these DNA tests, which are encouraging people to get their DNA online and compare it to other people's DNA. You know, the whole DNA testing, to me, that had a very sinister motive in the show. Yeah. Because it was the evil AI yes. doing it. But there is a legitimate ability to, from a health perspective, control, contain, do some stuff with that. Because um, there's so many things that are genetic, are uh, either you're predisposed to or you're going to have or you know, whatever. Yeah. But I get that. But then there's a a really fine line between cataloging, mm. controlling, and then you get almost into a eugenics kind of thing. Yeah. I had a, a co-worker on a past job who, you know, I forget why the subject came up, but genetically modified foods. Mm. He's like, I'm surprised you're not in favor of that. I said, you know, dude, I've got food allergies. Yeah. So go, yeah, we can engineer those out. And I'm like, uh, we as a human race mm-hmm. are not that brilliant. Yeah. There's more the risk of something going wrong. Mistakes happen. I'm not saying people are, well, we've got these four sciences out there. Mm-hmm. They could probably find a way to genetically take the gluten stuff out. Or they could actually transfer it to where I am now. There's more food I can grab or something. Or well, it makes it even worse in some way. What gets me about genetically modified foods I'm still trying to come to terms with is they'll say, okay, we're going to plant this specific field and we're going to see what happens. And find out if it has any negative side effects, etc. Let's see what happens. Wow, this machine. And I know that's how science works. Right, right. But now let's let's think about this. They've done tests, 
and they have found that seeds from that field have been found 5, 10, 12 miles away because there's this little thing known as the breeze. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of thing in our reality we've got to test, we've got interesting circumstances and unintended consequences. Yet, here were two super intelligent AIs that could simulate the world. Yeah. Or at least relevant subsets of it on not even a moment's notice, but literally do it thousands of times a second. Now, one of the episodes you alluded to, but I genuinely loved from season five, was the one where three previous numbers came back. Mm -hmm. I loved it for two reasons. First of all, these were people we helped previously. And we got to see again. We were outside of Manhattan and New York, where most of our stuff happened. To a different major city. And I had been wondering, for all these previous seasons, are other cities wired sufficiently with cameras and sound that numbers could be getting dispersed in those cities, that people could be getting helped, and it happened. They could absolutely do a person of interest in London. Yes. As like a, a BBC show or something. It'd be awesome. And do a BBC kind of a take on it. Yeah. Get rid of the guns and all that, and just, I don't know how it would play out, but it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that whole bit is... A nice um, allusion to the fact that there could be these other teams out there. Mm-hmm. We're not just limited to this one couple of people or whatever. Yeah. I think it was also alluded to a little when we first met Shaw and she was part of the government program with yeah. relevant members. Yeah. Well, I also liked the fact that it pointed out that everybody needs backup sometimes. Yeah. You know, all these years, John had been trying to do it on his own. He accepted some help begrudgingly in the early days when we go to Carter and stuff, but that was an episode where they bit off more than they could chew. Well, they were essentially somebody else's members. Yes. And there have been a couple of times where the machine had Root doing one path, uh, uh, Shaw doing another, Jean doing another, and it was kind of this orchestration where they had free will, but they were on kind of an agenda, and the machine kind of knew how things were going to play out. Yeah. Um, so there were, there were aspects of that that, that harken back to the uh, kind of the archetype of, of stories of the mastermind. Yeah. You know, it's like how sometimes Batman could just have forethought everything and line stuff up right, or, you know, what have you. Other characters, the Sherlock Holmes type, the, yeah. the uber thinker planner uh, mindset. Um, with a supercomputer or whatnot, it's uh, at least a little bit more believable. You know, the only character we haven't mentioned is actually one of my favorites. Bear. <laughs> that was the dog they introduced, I think, as far back as first season. You know, everybody missed the look you gave me, because yeah. he's my favorite. It was the dog that John gets uh, finished, Harold, uh, as protection. Yes, I um, Back when we were in the library. Yeah. Because they've had a few different uh, headquarters over the years. Oh, Bear ate some things. Bear ate books. Bear ate uh, the bonds in the back of the car. There was a growth curve for Bear <laughs> and the relationship he had with, with Harold and a few others. I'll be honest, I was disappointed by uh, by Bear's final fate. I really think he should have stayed with this one. So do I, actually. That's interesting. So do I. Um, I think... Shaw getting uh, getting the dog. Probably good for her. I think it humanized her, and I think that's why they did it. But but between that and her getting the call at the end, it felt like if this were to keep you another season, it's now her show. Yeah. You know, everybody else is kind of retired out of it, and it's, it's, you know, it's fine. Yeah. Well, and it's funny how Harold likes to die. What got me more than that in the final episode was the narrative structure was a little chaotic. I did not like the narrative structure of the final episode. I did not like the line of dialogue that kept repeating. Well, and I think the repetition and chaoticness and the flipping back in time was supposed to echo the virus taking down the machine. Yeah, probably. But I also like, and it was unclear because of the way they told the story, that the machine had called down to the subway, their headquarters, Mm Mm-hmm. It was recording its voice to where when it got rebooted, essentially, mm-hmm. it could use that to re-educate itself. 
Yeah. Which harkens back to something from an earlier season where there was a company where the people were basically printing out a bunch of stuff and then rekeying it in. Yeah. Because they were con- trying to, to, to retain the memory from it. Yeah. So the whole forced um, uh, Alzheimer's almost that the machine has. Yeah. As a, a safeguard. And there was a very Asimov kind of a mindset that Harold had with the building of the machine, what rails to put in place, how do you make sure you don't build something that just can keep control? Yeah. But also then you're kind of crippling it in that human. Yeah. And does that even matter with a machine? Well, can you teach an artificial intelligence self-control? He was able to teach it ethics to varying degrees. Well, initially not so well later. Um, although I think it was not so much that he taught it wrong that uh, they'd done some questionable things. Yeah. And at that point, it just didn't have context. Um, but the machine and Reese had always been in agreement that Harold was a priority. I'd have to go back and see if there was a, a time, because I think there was when we got one of the shots of the payphone from the vantage point of the security channel. And Lisa, or that was, uh, uh, Harold had gone missing, I think, and Reed had initially taken him. Yeah. And that's when I think they knew that agreement. That's what I'm thinking, too. Um, there were a lot of threads like that that, that that took, in some cases, years to play out that had a satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Um, now, Root had a surprising arc in terms of from when we first met Root until Root died. You, you didn't... Arc's ex- a... Relative term. Relative term. She had a good path, but it was kind of circular and all over the place. Well, that's very descriptive of the character, too. She was nicknamed Cocoa Puffs for a reason. Right, but there was an aspect where she was very much an agent of the machine in terms of trying to save it, trying to get it relocated, trying to do this, that, and the other. And there were other times where I felt she was a pawn of the machine. The machine was her god. She would do anything for the machine. But when we first met Root, she was evil. Yes. But unlike Fusco's arc where he went from corrupt to good, and I thought a believable man, she just kind of like, I don't see, woke up one day and was different. No, but she went from being evil because she would do anything in defense of the machine to reaching a point where she was in communication with the machine. And becoming an acolyte of the machine. I think it was less evil to good. It wasn't evil to good at all, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I'm agreeing with that. I think it was more a religious experience. Yes. In proper indoctrination, doctor in alignment with the Yeah. And I think when they showed the what would have happened to this character if the machine had never been invented, and she became an assassin on behalf of Samaritan, I totally agree with that. I did enjoy the episode where it was a, what would have happened if the machine hadn't been. Yeah. And just kind of, here's the, the you know, that other path. Yeah. And for the most part, you know, some go better, some go worse, some are just a little different. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, the world is much better, oh, the world is much worse. It's not yeah. that black and white. Yeah. But it gave, I thought, a, a believable path for the movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, overall, I thought it was a, a good show. It was just one that radically evolved. Yes, over definitely. the years, and I think that would turn some people off. Yeah, and understandably so. But it's also got some serious meat to it. It's got some good action sequences. It's got some fun, fun characters. If maybe not the most verbose characters. True. I I think the first two seasons are when it was the most procedural and number oriented. Mm-hmm. So I think if people don't want the conspiracy aspect, but are interested in that part of it, then watching the first two seasons. Subside, if somebody wants the more sci-fi, yes. two artificial intelligence duking it out with the world as a battlefield kind of thing. I'd look for where Root comes in. Uh, which I think is in the first season, beginning of the second. I would still, if you've got the time, to just go through the first season. Yes. Just to get the background on the machine, on the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's going to have, in, in that perspective, what feels like a slow start and going to the summit. Definitely. But it does kind of turn that corner 
where you realize it's no longer episodic, it is now full-blown serial murders. Well, and by tuning in from the start, you get the evolution of John from the mercenary to the guy who helps Fusco turn. And really, if Carter didn't help John, John wouldn't help Fusco. Well, and you also get the introduction to Elias, to yes. the Northern Lights program, to you know, all of the things that, that, in some cases, fade in and fade out over the years. Cameron Mannheim's character is Control. Yes. You know, you, if you skip the first season or two and just try to jump in, and it goes to that full-blown conspiracy thing, I think you lose some of the context yeah. that makes that later stuff good. That's true. But I'm... By and large, always a fan of Star Trek. That's true. Yeah. What do you say? 103 episodes? 103 episodes. But if you look at IMDb, you find that Root and Shaw are in 55, give or take, episodes. And really, I think that kind of lets you know that about half of it or less is the procedural aspect. And then when they come in is when it really starts going more conspiracy theory. AI versus AI. And very soon. Yes. Yeah. Because there are a lot more continued plot threads, a lot less than just sort of the Dunham one. Yeah. Uh, and again, the Dunham one episodic versus the serial. I'm not trying to suggest one is better than the other. No, no. They're just different and... It's just odd for a show to make this strong of a shift between the two. Yeah. Especially when you were, when I at least was expecting to tune in for that is this person a victim or a perpetrator? And we talked about it between ourselves from the moment the show was on in first season. One of the things they did in the opening credits, and mm. it's worth watching for because so few shows take the time to do something like this. They show these crowd shots and things as they're giving you an idea of how the machine views the world. It's one of the few shows that still has the opening kind of credits and stuff. And it's a voiceover of the machine, what it's about and stuff. But then once you're about to say, it cuts in uh, an image in that, that, that crowd sequence type stuff of the person following, of the, the person of interest whose number popped up. Yeah. And yeah. It, it personalizes the show some. Yeah. Um, it's little touches like that that just really made the show stand out from the start. Well, the other thing that's worth touching on just a little bit is... From a visual effects point of view, and I don't mean explosions or typical special effects, but just from almost like a graphic design, the overlaying of kind of the border around the person and the security camera kind of footage, the tags of, oh, it's uh, pine asset, or it's this, or it's that. Um, there were aspects of that, particularly when they would kind of uh, pull back on the image, it would kind of zoom it's where you now see it in like a thumbnail. You've got a timeline, you sit back about 10 years to give some backstory and yeah. There were some interesting visuals on that. And they made sure that the visuals for the two machines were different. Yes. Um, I thought it got a little bit more blurred uh, this season. It did. It was very hard for them to differentiate in season 5. Well, and I also don't think when they started up season 5 they reasserted. The yeah. iconography and the visuals and the machines. Yeah. Um, from season one, and to me it was humorous, uh, our machine, if you will, the machine, uh, was very dark, very black, mm-hmm. and things went left to right. Samaritan, which I consider to be the evil machine, was very bright, very white, and went up and down. Yeah. And I just don't think of evil as having the white hat, so I thought the fact it was white was funny. Well, it was casting a bright light on the machine. Yeah. Shining in the spotlight. They did some very interesting stuff, again, with the iconography and the visual aspect of how they would cut in the between the scenes at times. And they would do an establishing shot, and you would see kind of the, the, the airspace, you know, yeah. indicators. And it was a very techie view. You could, you could tell you were watching from the machine's perspective. Yeah, and frequently you could hear from the machi- machine's perspective, and you would get that, that tinny this is a cell phone, or this is over a mic sound, which is entertaining when you consider how hard television shows usually work to not have that sound. But it's a real credit, I think, both to the visual production people and the audio people, how well they pull that off, how well it's like, okay, now we're hearing 
same conversation, but we've cut to a shot down the street, so it's now over the phone versus in person. Yeah. And the things that are invisible as you're watching, you just take a step back and realize some of the subtle things they did, uh, and all the little kind of audio cues they've got to drop in to where it feels like something's rewinding and something's going here. We've just logged into this machine or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. They did yeah. a, a good job in production days. Yeah, they really did. So if you're looking for a good modern-day sci-fi kind of premise on, again, uh, privacy, uh, surveillance, and how that should go amok, uh, this is, I think, a, a show well with Nashville. Yeah, last I looked, which was fairly recently, the first four seasons were on Netflix, and as we said, season five just wrapped up on TV recently. So I'm not sure how quickly it will be, but it's probably not sure. It's a CBS show, so hopefully soon, but I don't know what uh, rules CBS watch with their streaming has. And if it's not there, uh, I know the stuff, uh, the previous seasons are on DVD. Mm, good point. And I would imagine CBS uh, All Access sort of. Yeah, that's what it streams is. Streams would have it too. All Access. So, fun show. Uh, again, I it changed so much. It's, it's hard to almost reconcile the beginning and the end of the same show. There was a line of dialogue I pointed out to you in the final episode, and I just want to mention it because uh, when you're at Comic Con during the panel, oh yeah, yeah, uh, Kevin Chapman, who plays Fusco, said that, and this was after the first, maybe the second season. He said that people were walking up to him on the street and saying, "You know, we see you in person of interest, and you're doing a great job." Don't get killed. Yeah, try not to die. Yeah. Uh, and you say he thought that meant they really liked the character. And that's how he was interpreting it. And I just love that there was a line to that effect in the final episode, kind of as a nod to he made it. about his character in the first season. It really leads you to believe he would have necessarily stuck around the entire time. Yeah. Then, then the final episode. Yeah. I'm glad he did. He did a great job. It was a fun character. Definitely. Probably one of the highlight characters of the show. You, there were times when the show got very dark, got far away from what I believed to have been the original premise, and he and his growth as a character was really a highlight and a bright spot in those moments. Well, if you think about it, the show is about Harold and John. Yeah. Saving the world. And he is kind of the case study of somebody just like Definitely. They fundamentally changed his life. He's in the thick of it. Yeah. And many, many opportunities to die. Yes. Um, but that survived and came out okay. It came out much better than you said. Well, and he had many opportunities to to slide back into being a dirty cop and making bad decisions, whether yeah. or not he was a dirty cop. And uh, his interactions with Elias are proof of him making good decisions and being a better person. Yeah, definitely a, a worthwhile show to watch. Yeah, so I, I definitely recommend it. So anything else? Is that pretty much it? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.